Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. I want us to uh, come to God's Word now, and as, as, as we open to Psalm 104 for this morning, it's, uh, um, I want to actually tell you as we start about one of my favorite animals, and you're, and you're probably thinking, like, there's two problems with that. First of all, why is a missionary come all the way overseas to tell me about his favorite animal? And second of all, you're probably like, is it okay for an adult to have a favorite animal? Um, like, is that really, is that really, like, is that a thing? Um, I, I want to say I'm an adult and I have lots of favorite animals. And um, uh, as, as I said earlier, one of the most common objections I face in evangelism in Italy is the, is the whole idea of evolutionary thought, evolutionary theory. A lot of con- confusion about or- the origins of the planet and of, of the human race mixed in with confused views of what the Bible says creates a, 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 a huge confusion in the minds of people I interact with, both atheists and Roman Catholics. Um, have a lot of trouble trying to figure out how to reconcile what the Bible says and what science says. And so as a result, of, in the years of ministry, the Lord has given me a growing passion, a deep passion to study God's creation and to study the texts of scriptures that talk about God's creation and, and how to apply these texts to the world around us and how we understand both our history uh, as a human race, but also the world around us. And so at times this has led me to examine and study various animals uh, just because I found it very fascinating. And right now, I mean, you might, I might change my mind next week, but right now one of my favorite animals is, is the elephant. Um, and so there's probably a good thing there's no children's church today because I can, children like animals, right? And so we can talk about animals. And, and the animal, the elephant is truly an incredible animal. It can uproot a tree with its trunk and it's not difficult for, for it to use its trunk to carry a tree that weighs 450 pounds. It can just walk around with, a, with it. And with that same trunk, it can also grab onto little berries uh, in, in, in the woods. It's amazing to think that the elephant's trunk is equipped with more than 50,000 muscle units. And our bodies, if I understand right, we have just over 600 muscles. And so you just see the difference right away. The, the trunk of an elephant can weigh over 400 pounds, um, and this is very interesting. Did you know that an elephant can be either right-trunked or left-trunked? Uh, we're right-handed or left-handed. The elephant, scientists have observed that it has a trunk dexterity. And it, it, maybe it prefers to like, feed itself this way or feed itself this way. So as, as a small elephant, it develops this ability. Um, we can also speak about uh, the trunks, uh, the, the elephant's legs and feet. Um, these, these giant animals they naturally walk on their tiptoes. Um, they, they, um, they kind of sneak around. They, and they have, if you ever thought about an elephant, what happens when it stands in mud? It's going to sink. Okay, so what happens when an elephant that can sink into the mud for more than a yard, how does it get out? How does it get out? Because what, the mud is going to be like cement that just kind of surrounds it. Um, but that doesn't matter because one of the, the, the features that God has designed into the elephant is it's capable of shrinking the diameter of its foot so it can slip out of the mud and pull itself out with relative ease. Why am I telling you all this? Um, because the elephant is an, ex- is an incredible example of how the earth is full of God's glory. The angels in Isaiah 6, if you remember the passage when Isaiah sees the Lord seated on his his throne, the angels declare, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. What does it mean that the whole earth is full of his glory? It means that the abundance of the earth is but a, a, a simple reflection of the glory of God 
And the elephant gives us just a, an example, a practical example of the wonder of the world that God has created, that he's created for us to study. And in the, in the design in the animal kingdom always makes me worship God. It makes me worship God for his greatness. Uh, the, the animals make me meditate on the glory of God and the, the glory of their creator. And so I, I picked Psalm 104 because it's, it's an incredible psalm that will help us get a better understanding of how the glory of God is shown in the world around us. And so this sermon is on one of my favorite texts in the Bible on creation. And it's been an encouragement. It's a sermon I've preached in Italy, in Italian. And uh, it's been an encouragement to the people in Italy. And I thought maybe it would be an encouragement to you this morning as, as, um, as, uh, as, as, we, as we walk through this text. And so my, my objective this morning is just to help you uh, get a, a better understanding of how to see the glory of God in the world around us. And as we just opened to Psalm 104, before I read any, any bits of it, um, it's clear that just kind of letting your eyes fall across the words on the, of this psalm, that it's clear that it has to do with the great work of God in creation and providence. You see words in verse 2 like light and in heaven. And in verse 3, you see words like waters and clouds and wind. In verse 5, you see the word earth. In verse 10, valleys and mountains. And further ahead in verses 11 through 14, you see beasts and wild donkeys and birds and grass and vegetation. Uh, Verse 15, you see the word wine and oil and food. Uh, Verse 16, trees. Verse 18, wild goats. Uh, verse, Verse 19, moon and sun. Verse 21, young lions and then verse 25, you see the word sea. And in verse 26, you see that strange word leviathan. So as we come into this text, I just want to give you also maybe a few phrases as to what the commentators say about this psalm, because they say some pretty incredible things. One commentator, Perone, says this, this psalm is a, a bright and living picture of God's creative power, pouring life and gladness throughout the universe. Um, Boyce says that Psalm 104 is a splendid praise psalm, one of the finest in the Psalter. Another commentator, Grant, says that the truths of this psalm are cause for the loudest of praises and the deepest joy. Kidner says variety and breadth, sharpness of detail and sustained vigor of thought put this psalm of praise among the giants. And another author says, this is the most perfect hymn the world has ever produced. It's a pretty strong statement to call this the most perfect hymn that the world has ever produced when we consider there's 149 other psalms, and then we have some great hymns that we sing as well. Um, And and given that this psalm is quite long, it's 35 verses, we're just going to read a little bit at a time as we go through it. I'm not going to read it all at one time at the beginning and then talk about it. I'm going to just read a little bit uh, as we go. And, um, but before we actually get into the psalm, I want to give just a, a few words of initial explanation as to what this psalm is about. And as you look in verse 1, uh, verse 1 starts with the words, Bless the Lord, O my soul. And the last verse of the psalm kind of closes the circle, and the last phrase of the psalm in verse 35 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, praise the Lord. And so the psalm starts and finishes with this, with this well-known phrase, bless the Lord, praise the Lord, alleluia, this exhortation to worship and praise God. 
And so he accentuates in this way, the psalmist accentuates the end for which God created the world for which we are made to bless God, to praise God, to worship God, to render honor to God. The, the psalm desires to, uh, the psalmist desires to draw out of our hearts a, a, a deep and abiding worship from our souls to stimulate us to consider the greatness of God in the world around us. And as we look again into the psalm in verse 33, if you just notice, he says, I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have my being. The contents of this psalm are so majestic that we will never grow tired of singing and worshiping our God for the same reasons the psalmist is going to go through. He says, I'm going to sing as long as I live. As long as I live, I'm going to sing. Uh, as long as I have my being, I'm going to sing praise to God. And so the, the contents of, 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 of this psalm give us cause for sustained, lifelong worship of God. If you look at verse 34, he says, let my meditation be pleasing to him. Let my meditation be pleasing to him. This profound joy, this, this thundering worship is, is, is drawn out of a, of a sustained meditation on the creation. Our, our hearts, our souls, your hearts, your souls, your minds are made to take into consideration, to take into serious consideration the world around us and to meditate on the creation of God so that it draws out worship in our hearts. And this will warm our hearts, will fuel our hearts to worship. Um, again, by way of initial explanation, Verse 31 is really the key verse of the whole psalm. Verse 31 says, Let the glory of the Lord endure forever. Let the Lord be glad in his works. And, and so taking this, this, maybe the second part of that verse, let God be glad in his works. This is the psalmist's desire that God would be glad in his works. And he's saying this not because he's thinking, well, maybe there's this slight possibility that there's a risk that God might not actually be glad in his works. So let's ask God to be glad in his works. But he's, he's saying that God is actually glad in what he has made. And so he, 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 he says, God be, let God be glad in his works. You remember Genesis 1, that God saw all that he had made and it was very good. God delights in what he has made. He finds pleasure in his works. He, he enjoys the universe he has made. And, and, and so the, the, the first phrase of this verse explains to us why is it, the first phrase in, in verse 31 explains to it why is it that God can be glad in his works. He says, let the glory of the Lord endure forever. The reason God is glad in his works is because in his works, the glory of God is put on display. So in, in, in reality, all of the works that the psalmist is going to talk about in this psalm is because they, they reveal to us God's glory. The great, the great theme is after meditating on all these things, it makes us think not just of the creation, but of the glory of the creator who made these things. And so the, the ultimate reason why God is enthusiastic about his works of creation, why he is, if we can say, proud of his works, uh, is because these reveal the power of his glory, and his glory will endure forever. God, God isn't just walking around, man, those mountains that I made are really amazing. 
Oh, look at that elephant. That's an incredible, look at that. No, it's because of these, these things. He doesn't say, wow, the fragrance of the flowers that fill the, fill, fill the air, that's really incredible. No, it's because all of the things in the creation are traceable back to the wonder of God's glory. The creation reveals his glory. It shows us who he is. Like Psalm 19 says, you remember Psalm 19 says, the heavens are telling the glory of God. Their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Romans 1.20 says, Since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has, God, God, what has been made, so they are without excuse. The earth is full of the glory of God. The created world shows forth the perfections of how God ordered his universe. And so we can say that the physical world is the overflow of God's glory. It's the overflow of his glory, of the joy that God has in his own glory. And so he puts on display, he highlights his invisible attributes for us and what he has made. As Romans 1.20 says, since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. <clears throat> Various theologians have called the creation a theater for the glory of God. John Calvin called it the beautiful, the beati, be, be, I don't even know how to say this in English, the beatus, the beautiful theater. We enter into a theater to watch a play, right? If, if we still do, I don't know if that's a thing still, but we enter into, a, we should, in theory, enter into a theater to watch a play. For God, the universe, his creation, is the theater in which we go to look not at a play, but at his spectacular glory. And our psalm this morning, Psalm 104, will help us understand, okay, we're in this theater. What is it that we should look for? How should we think about this revelation so that we can worship God with all of our hearts? And we can only scratch the surface of its contents this morning, but I want us to glimpse together in these verses this morning three revelations of the glory of God in the world. We're going to look at three incredible revelations of God's glory that should make our hearts overflow uh, with wonder and with eternal praise for our God. And so first, let's look at the glory. The first thing that we see is the glory of his transcendent greatness. The glory of his transcendent Greatness. The first verse, as after the exhortation to bless the Lord of my soul, verse one says, Oh Lord my God, you are very great. You are very great. The psalm doesn't, doesn't start saying, The universe is very great. The creation is incredibly wonderful. It's not what he says. He says, God is very great. And this is the point of departure when we look at creation because it protects us from idolatry. There's those that go and look at the creation and they're naturalists and they give all the glory and the credit to the natural world around us, ignorant of the greatness of the God who made everything. And so this protects us from idolatry. God doesn't, isn't part of his creation. He's distinct. He's, he's, he's truly exalted above his creation he transcends everything that he made. And so that's why it says, oh Lord, you are very great. And, and, and then he gives us various images that exalt the greatness of God and his transcendence. It says 
<clears throat> we see in verse two or in verse one, you 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 you're clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a cloak. Verse two says that he stretches out the heavens like a tent curtain. He lays the beams of his water of, of his upper chambers in the waters, verse three, and makes the clouds like his chariots. He walks upon the wind, wings of the wind. These are all images that exalt God's transcendence above his creation. These, these works that he talks about, the, the light, the, the heavens, the waters, the wind, these are all indicators. that He, he, he uses these. They're, they're hints that, that help us contemplate something even greater, that God is greater than these things that he's made. It says in verse 1 that he's clothed with splendor and majesty. Splendor and majesty are, are these are words that it's, it's the, it's, this is the language of clothing. He's using clothing language that God is, is, is dressed with splendor and majesty. These are words that are fit for a king. They're regal words. They apply to a, a king or a, or a dignitary of a, of a particular country. And, and, and specifically, this clothing, it says in verse 2, you cover yourself with light as with a cloak. You cover yourself with light as with a cloak. God presents himself like this monarch who comes out wearing his, his, his gown. And, and he says, it's God's, God's clothes are the light. He's clothed with light. The, the, the blinding light of, of thousands and thousands and thousands of suns and stars doesn't even come close to the splendor of the essence of our God. Light is pure. Light is pure. You don't have a little bit of light mixed with darkness. It just, it's not possible. Light is pure. And, and, and so if God is clothed with light, what, what is that saying about what God himself is in his essence? He's pure. He's brilliant. He's, he's more uh, glorious than we can even imagine in his essence. And so this idea of this blinding light that covers God helps us begin just a little bit to grasp on to what it means to be, to, 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 for God to be glorious. <clears throat> it says he stretches out the heavens like a tent curtain. C- can you imagine anything more vast than the heavens? In, in one year, the light travels about 5.9 trillion miles. I don't even know how to how to grasp 5.9 trillion miles. Like, what does that even mean? If, 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 we, could, if we could travel constantly at the speed of light, we, we, would, uh, we would arrive at the cl- star closest to us after the, after the sun, um, uh, Proxima Centauri, after 4.2 years, just to get to the closest star, traveling at the speed of light. Th- these distances are unfathomable. And, and what does it say? God stretches out the heavens like they're just a curtain. He just, whoosh, and, and, and that's what God's greatness and the greatness of his power. And, and we, we um, with our modern technology, we can't even see the edge of the universe. Um, there's, there's stars and there's galaxies that we can't even see. Why, why did God make them? Because he rejoices in his works and they show something of his glory. The, the, what seems to us a universe that seems infinite, 
is actually finite for God because he's the one stretching it out. And so it, it's just an, a start for us. It's just a little hint for us to begin to think about what it means to, that God is transcendent, that he is great. It helps us grasp a hold of his greatness. And there's nothing like him in all of the creation. It says at the end of verse 3 or the middle of verse 3 that he makes the clouds his chariot. He walks upon the wings of the wind. We travel in planes, trains, and automobiles. We travel um, in rockets, maybe. For, for God, his means of, of, of travel, if we can make it metaphorical, are the powerful winds that are upon the earth, the, the, the massive clouds that cover the earth. I, I flew in um, to um, Dulles Airport on Friday night on a flight from New York, and it was the most turbulent flight I've ever been. I fly all over the most turbulent flight I've ever been on. Turbulent, constant turbulence the whole way. I felt at some point the plane was going to like rotate. And this is a huge, massive piece of metal flying through, through, through wind, through clouds, and it's getting tossed around. Um, God, he just has it calmly under control. He just, th- these, this is what, he, what, what his means of transportation on. They're just means of transportation for him. He, he travels through the dark storms, through lightning, through thunder. And this just gives us a taste of his transcendent power. Just a taste. So the first thing, the first revelation that we see of God's glory in his creation is, is, is the glory of his transcendent grace, greatness. This, the second revelation of God's glory is the glory of God's good providence or of his providential goodness, however you want to say it, but the glory of his good providence or his providential goodness. The, the, the next verses that we're going to see explain to us how God in his goodness guides, governs, and sustains his universe. The creation, as we look around, remember we're trying to, what are we supposed to learn from the creation? As we look at the creation, it reveals to us his goodness through his works of providential care over his creation. When we talk about God's providence, the theological concept is that unsoundable truth that God governs, directs every element of his creation constantly in all of history, preserving and directing everything unto his, his, his end. God isn't like that that, um, that what, what you hear unbelievers sometimes say, maybe there's a God, he kind of wound up the universe and let it go, and then he walked away from it. No, as we look into the, into the world around us, we see the evidence of, of, a, of a meticulous creator governing his creation. And we're going to see that, that God didn't just leave the universe to go on its own, but he actively participates, sustaining everything with his word. Verses 5 through 23 reveal that, this to us, and we can break down verses 5 to 23 in two ways. Verses 5 through 9, which we'll read here in a moment, explain to us that God powerfully um, upholds or sustains the earth. And then verses 10 through 23, we see that God meticulously cares for his creation. And so we want to look at these two ways, how God powerfully sustains the earth, and second, how God uh, meticulously cares uh, for his creation, for his works that he has made. And so in verses 5 through nine, it talks how God 
uh, powerfully, uh, powerfully sustains the earth. In verse 5, it says, He established the earth upon its foundations so that it will not totter forever and ever. God has established the earth, its orbit, in a particular way so that we can live on it. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. We, we don't live on a planet that's gyroscopically unstable. We're not just like spinning all over the place. Yes, the earth is spinning, but it's, it's stable. It, it's hospitable to us for life. According to some calculations, the earth itself weighs 13,170 with 21 zeros after it pounds. That's 13,170 billion trillion pounds. Again, I don't, back when you think about 5.9 trillion um, um, miles, I don't even know how to calculate, contemplate 13,170 with 21 zeros after it pounds. Um, we, 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 we can hardly keep a basketball stable on our finger, you know, spinning. Um, but God has rendered, has, has made the earth stable for us. Um, and we give it, we, 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 we kind of take it for granted. We don't ever think about that, that, the, that he has established the earth so that it will not totter forever and ever. We, we live, we walk about, we don't even think about these great works of providence that God does for us so that we can live here. What, what power is demonstrated as God sustains our earth, our planet so easily? Verses six through nine explain to us that how God has prepared the surface of the earth for us in his power. In his power. It says in verses six through nine, you covered it with the, with the deep as with a garment. The waters were standing above the mountains. At your rebuke, they fled. At the sound of your thunder, they hurried away. The mountains rose. The valleys sank down to the place which you established for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass over so that they will not return to cover the earth. God prepared the surface of the earth. Most commentators will view these verses about the, about the water covering the earth as a reference to that, that third day of creation when God made dry land emerge out of, out, of the, out of the waters. But I think there's another interpretation that fits better with, with these verses. I think that these verses are actually referring to the global flood of Noah's day. Um, because in verse 6, for example, it says, you covered it with the, the deep as with a garment, the waters were standing above the mountains. These, these words, the specific language used in the original language here, are not the words used from Genesis 1, but they're the exact words used from Genesis 7 uh, with regard to the flood where it says the water prevailed 15 cubits higher and the mountains were covered. It's the same uh, linguistic connection. It's a, it's a connection between Psalm 104 and Genesis 7. And so I think that what, what this is saying is how God providentially um, prepared the surface of the earth after or during the flood for us to live in. Um, that's not to say that God didn't do incredible things also in, in the week of creation. But when we, when we consider the surface of the earth that we live in today, it's actually the results of a great act of judgment of God upon the earth. Um, when God eradicated man and his creation from the earth in, the, in, the, in, in a judgment that's so great that nothing in history since then has even paralleled, has, has even paralleled it. But even in his judgment, according to these verses, God was active in his power and his goodness to prepare for us 
a, a world that we could live in, a beautiful world, the beauty that we all experience in creation, the mountains, the valleys. This is all the result of, 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 of the flood and things that God has done since. God was preparing for the generations after Noah. And so the, 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 the beauty of the creation that we see as the mountains are there, the valleys are there, that the, the fact that the water doesn't come back over and cover us um, is beauty that are, emerges out of, uh, out of a great act of judgment. Uh, verse 9 does remind us that God did set a boundary. He's not going to send another flood. You set a boundary that they may not pass over so that they will not return to cover the earth that God's not going to destroy the earth again like he did, one, he did at one, one point. The, the king of creation has set a boundary on his waters. All the waters, if you think about all the water in the earth, the furious waves of the ocean, the devastating tsunamis, the, 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 the rushing rivers, the, the mountain tor- uh, uh, brooks, all of these waters obey God's laws, they all obey what God has told them to do so that they won't destroy us again. I mean, if you think about it, all God would have to do is lift up the ocean basins and what would happen to all that water? It would cover the earth again. But it, was, it doesn't happen and it's not going to happen because God sustains the earth with the, the word of his power. And so God prepares the earth and sustains the earth for us to live in. Also, as we look, uh, as we continue to look in verse um, 10 through 13, we, we begin to see, or 10 to 24, God meticulously cares for his creation. He cares meticulously for his creation. He's good. He provides for all of his creation. In verses 10 through 13, he provides water for all. It says, he sends forth springs in the valleys. They flow between the mountains. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Besides them, the birds of the heavens dwell. They lift up their voices among the branches. He waters the mountains, verse 13, from his upper chambers. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of his work. God easily gives water to all of his creation. Even the wild donkeys in verse 11 get, get to drink. And they're, uh, in, in, in the original context, that would have been a desert animal. God provides in the deserts water. But also, uh, in the most remote parts, it says in verse 13, he waters the mountains from his upper chambers. Even the highest mountains receive water. God provides this essential liquid for everyone. Also in his goodness, in verses 14 through 16, he provides food. Uh, he provides food for all. It says in verse 14, he causes the grass to grow for the cattle and vegetation for the labor of man so that he may bring forth food from the earth. Verse 15 says, and wine, which makes man's heart glad. And the Italians love that verse. He provides wine, uh, which, make, which makes heart, man's heart glad. He, he makes so that he may make his face glisten with oil and food, which sustains man's heart. The trees of the Lord drink their fill, the cedars of Lebanon, which he has planted. Um, if you ever think about it, aren't you thankful we're not always eating the same flavor every day, every meal? That there's, God, God is so kind. He provides for every animal incredible things like wine and like oil for everyone. You, you know, in Italy, it's, it's interesting. As soon as you sit down at a table, that becomes the subject of conversation, what you're eating. Where did you get this from? What region does this come from? How did you make it? That's, that's, all, that's what people talk about there. It's just like you form friendships around, around food. Um, yesterday we went and we had some incredible barbecue, 
right? We're, we're eating, and I, I'm sitting, we're tasting different barbecue sauces, and, and we're tasting different meats, and, uh, and we're just enjoying God's provision for us, and he deserves the glory for that. He deserves the glory for that. He, he gives this to us so that we can enjoy the world that he's made. Also, God provides a place for all to live. Verses 17 and 18, it says that the, the birds build their nests, the stork whose home is in the fir trees. The high mountains are for the wild goats. The cliffs are a refuge for the, 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 the shephanim, which is some kind of mountain rodent. Um, God provides the, for, for all of his works. The, 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 the world is full of all kinds of creatures, and every one of them has its place. The, there's the, the trees are for, are for the birds. The high mountains, which are essentially not habitable by us, are a place for the wild goats. The cliffs where man won't live are for these shephanim, or this, this kind of... Um, uh, rodent that, that lives up in, in those areas. Uh, God has designed all these creatures and given them what they need to capably uh, live in their environments. Even these most remote places of the earth have a place or are a place for someone or something. And, and moving from living places, he now, uh, in, in verse 19, moves beyond the earth into the solar body, or the, 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 uh, the, the, the bodies in space. And it says in verses 19 through 23, he made the moon for the seasons. The sun knows the place of its setting. Um, even the, loon, the, 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 the moon, sorry, luna is the word in Italian I'm thinking of, uh, m- moon uh, serves its purpose. It's, it establishes seasons for us. And, and also the, 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 the holidays for ancient Israel. And it helps us count months. And, and, and the sun, the proud sun, the brilliant sun that we see, hopefully more days than not, uh, it, it does nothing else but obey the rhythm that God has established for it. And then the, soul, the, the, the sun um, sets. The sun sets, and what does it do? It gives us a break from its heat. The sun sets, and it gives us a break uh, from its heat. And then what happens in verse 20 is that then God appoints darkness and it becomes night in which all the beasts of the forest prowl about. The young lions roar after their play, prey and they seek their food from God. When the sun rises, they withdraw and lie down in their dens and man goes forth to his work and to his labor until evening. And so we work during the day, but at night when we're not active, God is still active because he draws the animals out and the animals now have their time. God's not sleeping like we are, and, and God even takes care of those nocturnal predators that go about looking for their, 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 um, their food. And he personifies young lions in verse 21. It says the young lions roar after their play. They seek their food from God. He personifies them as if they're casting their cares upon the Lord for food. God doesn't ignore his creatures, his, the nocturnal creatures, but he gives food even to them. And he, he arrives at this verse, this pivotal verse in, in verse 24, and he's overwhelmed. He can't contain himself. And he says, oh, Lord, how many are your works? In wisdom, you have made them all. The earth is full of your possessions. 
Have you ever overflowed with praise like the psalmist, where he's just contemplating everything God has made, all the goodness of God, and he just can't contain himself, and he overflows with praise, thinking about God's providential goodness in the world? I think we, we, we take it for granted too often that God is governing his world, providing in his goodness for the world around him. We, we walk every day, probably we see plants, we see trees. Maybe in the, in the city we don't see all these kinds of animals, but you can go on the internet and you can watch all kinds of videos or you can go to a zoo. Um, or if, you, if, you, if you'd want to, you could probably go and take a safari in Africa. Um, but... Um, we, we look at these things, we think, oh, the sun's setting. But we don't think, oh, it's time for God to now care for the, for the other animals. Um, we, don't, we, don't, we don't think about it because we're not, we're not processing the world through the lens of this psalm. But we need to open our eyes to what's going on around us and give God thanks and glory for what he does. His, his invisible hand is behind all of these things. And we, we come now to the the, the last revelation of God's glory in creation, the last revelation of, of God's glory is the glory of his multifaceted wisdom, the glory of his multifaceted wisdom. We've seen his transcendent great, greatness, his providential goodness. Uh, uh, right now we want to see his, his multifaceted wisdom. And he, again, in that same verse, he says, O Lord, how many are your works in wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your possessions. It would be impossible to make a list of all the works of God. The diversity that exists in creation, the, 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 the sheer number of things that God has made makes us think about this mind of our creator is infinitely wise. In wisdom, he's made all of, all of these things. We, uh, we, we, can't, um, we can't make all of these things. I just was thinking in my mind, um, my wife, she's a wonderful cook. She makes all kinds of incredible things, but there's a limit to what she's able to do. Like she's really good, but she can't make an infinite number of, of dishes. Okay. God makes an infinite number of, 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 of works that he has on display in, in the creation. And, and I, I just think when you think about the, the diversity in our creation, the majority of the scientific community in our world would want us to think that this diversity this harmony in the universe that we see is the result of, of, of blind chance in long periods of time. How can chaotic nothingness driven by blind chance give birth to infinite complexity? How, how can that happen? How, how can the infinite complexity that we see in our world be the result of, of blind chance and nothing? This can only be the result of, of, of the infinite mind, wise mind of our creator. Verse 24 says, the earth is full of your possessions. The, the, the creation shows to us how rich God is. These are all his possessions. It shows us how rich God is in wisdom. Everything belongs to him. The elephant, it's God's elephant. Did you know that? It shows us his multifaceted wisdom. The, the same God that made the elephant, also made the ant that you see walking, crawling around on the sidewalk. Every ecosystem in the world is designed by God, for God, and along with, along with all the biological diversity in each ecosystem. The same God that makes his glory shine in a nebula and space or the Milky Way and, 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 and stars that we can only see with, with telescopes 
is the same God that shines forth his glory in the microorganisms of, of, of lakes that live in lakes and, and in, the, in the wonders of our cells that we can only see with microscopes. God makes things that you can only see with telescopes. He makes things you can only see with microscopes. It's all his. It all belongs to him. It's all the work of his wisdom. And what's amazing, it all works together. It all works together like a symphony. For those of you who are musicians, all the instruments contribute to make a beautiful song. The same thing in the creation, it shows us the glory of the wisdom of our God. Verse 25 and 26 say, There is the sea great and broad, in which are swarms without numbers, animals both great and small. There, are ships, there, there the ships move along the Leviathan, which you have formed a sport in it. He, he starts just thinking about the wisdom of God in the sea, in the sea animals. Uh, if you think about the, the sea, it covers 70% of our earth. In every part of the oceans, we find sea creatures of all, ki- of all kinds, small ones like plankton or like the seahorse or the dwarf lantern shark that reaches a length of only eight inches. But God also owns the immense sea creatures like the giant squid that's 60 feet long or the blue whale with its 100-foot-long body and 130 tons of weight. It's all, it's all, it's all God's, from God's mind. In verse 26, it talks about this leviathan, which is probably some sort of, of sea monster or a, a, a sea dinosaur that's now extinct and we only know from the fossils but it was, a, it was a creature that demonstrated God's great power. And for him, it, it says that this Leviathan sported in the water. It was, it, it was the, 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 the sea was like a playground for this animal. And, and God thought about all of this. And, and we've only touched on these details in this psalm. We've seen God's transcendent greatness. We've seen his providential goodness, his his multifaceted wisdom. And for all this, this is why the psalmist says, bless the Lord, O my soul. He says, bless the Lord, O my soul. Let the glory of the Lord endure forever. Let the Lord be glad in his works. Can your heart overflow with praise to God? Even if your life is difficult and you're weighted down by different things in your life, can this give you new life in your praise for the Lord? God rejoices in his creation, and he wants us to rejoice in his creation. God finds pleasure in his creation, and he wants us to find pleasure in his creation for his glory. He wants us to be amazed. He wants our hearts to overflow with joy. He wants us to sing the mighty power of God like we did this morning. In conclusion, I, I want to just draw your attention to one verse that we haven't really mentioned, and that's verse at the beginning of verse 35. There's this phrase here that seems to be a bit out of place for a psalm so majestic. It says, let sinners be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more. Why, why, is a, why in a hymn so majestic as this is there this phrase that seems to put a stain, kind of stains this psalm. It says, let the sinner, sinners be consumed from the earth, let the wicked be no more. This reminds us that the creation now, the creation that God has made for as wonderful and beautiful and amazing as it is, for as much as it reveals to us the glory of God, it's still stained by the fall of man. There's still wickedness in this world because of sin. And the, the man who is the sinful man that is outside of salvation in Christ, 
the wicked man, the sinner, for as much as God actually even cares for that person, that person is still a stain on God's perfect creation. And so Psalm 104 concludes hoping for the day when God's creation will be definitively purified of all of these kind of stains and darkness, when God will judge the wicked once and for all. And so in a, in a form of, of, of a prayer request, this verse hopes for the day that the last chapters of the Bible talk about. When it talks about God creating a new heavens and a new earth where there will be no wickedness that dwells, when God will wipe away every tear and God will dwell with his people. But in that creation, when God has a creation that is not stained by sin, there will be no wicked person in that creation. As Revelation 21 actually says, there's going to be no cowards, no immoral man, no, no liars. And the new creation will be full of the glory of God like waters cover the earth. And there will be not, not even a single stain of sin in the new creation. And, and this reminds us that there's really two kinds of people in the world. There's, we can classify all the people in the world in, in two categories simply. There's those sinners who are in Christ, who are saved, righteous in Christ, and those are those who are outside of Christ. There are those who are in Christ who can say with the psalmist, bless the Lord, O my soul, O Lord, my God, my God, you are very great. Those who can call God my God, no one is born saying my Oh, Lord, my God, you are very great. There has to be a conversion, a, a change. And this just makes us ask the question, or makes me ask the question, what category do you fall into? What category do you fall into? I, I don't know you guys personally, um, but uh, can you say that God is your God? Can you say that there will be a day when you will be in a, in a new creation without any sin? And if you can't, if you can't say, no, I can't say God is my God, your conscience collaborates with the creation around us. You can see in the world around, you can see God's goodness. You can see his wisdom. You can see his greatness. You can see his invisible attributes. And I would just plead with you not to suppress that. Don't suppress that, but open your heart to the creator because this same glorious creator that we've studied is the same creator that in a, the great miracle of the incarnation took on human flesh in Jesus Christ and showed, Jesus Christ showed to be the same glorious creator that we've studied. It's the same creator, one who turned uh, water into wine, the one who created food for 5,000 people with just a couple of sandwiches, the one who who the wind obeyed his voice and he calmed the storm, the one who suspended the laws of gravity so that he could walk on water. He came to save sinners so that they won't fall into this category of those who were removed from the earth. And God desires to reconcile you to him in Christ. And so I would plead with you that you would come to Christ, receive his forgiveness, and be able to say, bless the Lord, O my soul. O God, my God, you are very great. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the way that it instructs us to think about the world around us. Please fill our hearts with praise for, uh, for you. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been encouraged by today's message. For more information, 
or more messages like this, visit us at cascadesbiblechurch.com or subscribe via your favorite podcast app.